0: It's Banned Books Week this week, and the fact that that is even a thing just blows my mind. Extremists, fueled by disinformation spread by hate groups, are challenging books in public and school libraries at an unprecedented pace. Our guest this week is on the front lines of protecting our access to information. Emily Dubrinsky is the president of the American Library Association the oldest and largest library association in the world. The
1: new culture war raging across America is over books, a.k.a. movies without the cool sound effects.
0: The life of Rosa Parks. This apparently is too woke.
1: Like everybody involved in Ban Books Week, I wish that we were at a point where we didn't have to have a Banned Books Week and that everything it just Freedom to read was absolute, but we are far, far from that right now.
0: I'm looking at Mm Catch-22. Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle. The Great Gatsby. Classics. Every one of them banned in some places.
2: Hi, I'm Emily Drabinski, president of the American Library Association, and I'm fighting for every American's right to read. Sorry, not sorry.
0: Emily, welcome to Sorry Not Sorry. Thank you so much for being here. Will you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and the work that you do?
2: Sure. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's like a total honor to be talking with you, and all my friends are super impressed and excited. So thanks for the cred. I'm an associate professor at the Queens College School of Library and Information Studies at the City University of New York, and I'm the current president of the American Library Association.
0: Okay. And this might seem like a really dumb question, but please let's unpack what functions do libraries serve in our schools and communities?
2: I think a shorter answer would be, what do we not do? We do sort of everything. And there are libraries everywhere. And as president of the American Library Association, I've gotten to meet a zillion librarians and go to a zillion libraries, and every single one is different. What we all have in common is that we are built to serve our communities in whatever shape they are, meeting the needs of the people around us. I grew up in Idaho, in Boise, and my dad and his family retired to McCall, Idaho, which is a little mountain town, ski town, way up in the mountains, in the most beautiful part of the world, if you ask me. And the public libraries there circulate things like sleds in the winter and bikes and bike repair kits in the summer, meaning recreational needs. But they also do after-school programming and all kinds of things for the kids in the communities. But it really depends on where you're at, what you get from your community library, all kinds of needs.
0: So, given that, given all the needs that you bring. And all the problems you solve within a community, why is it in our public interest to fund and protect libraries? Like, why do those things matter?
2: I love the way you put that. If I can just go backwards a little bit, the way you put that, that all the problems we solve. Because I really think if you drill down and ask, what does a library worker really do? What is a librarian all about? And we aren't just about telling you to be quiet. We're, in fact, about solving your problem. So one of the things I've done for more than 20 years in libraries is fix the stapler when it gets jammed, right? So you try to use a stapler, and you come to the reference desk and you say, Emily, this is jammed. How can you help me? And I'll take the stapler and throw it on the ground and that will pop it open and unjam it. And it's problems that are small like that to problems that are really big. I was in South Carolina last year at their library conference and learned about a program at the Charleston Public Library, where when the eviction assistance program came out from the federal government during the COVID pandemic, you had to sign up for the eviction assistance, the rental assistance that would keep you from losing your home. Super important, super crucial. But in order to get access to the funds that would keep you in your home, you had to fill out an online form. And you had to have an email address and you had to have the broadband internet access necessary to help you do those things. Where else in your community are you going to find a computer you can use, a person who's trained to help you figure out how to use it if you've never used it before, broadband access so that you can submit the form and get follow-ups on it and track your progress and fill out the next form when it comes in. That's a huge problem. And the Charleston Public Library solved that for so many members of their community working hand in the wake of the pandemic. So problems big and small, the library is on it.
0: It's all incredible. And unfortunately, we are meeting for something that is frustrating because I don't see how we got to this point where we even need this. But this week is Banned Books Week. We have a week. Banned Books Week. Why do we need it?
2: So this is a week where all of us care about the right to read and the freedom to read and the liberty to read about ourselves and to learn about ourselves, learn about ideas, come together and say very clearly, very loudly, very publicly that the freedom to read is among the most cherished freedoms that any American has and that is crucial and important to safeguard those freedoms a tennessee school board has banned the critically acclaimed graphic novel mouse it is a true story about the
1: horrors of the holocaust by art spiegelman and it depicts jews as mice and nazis as cats one school board member commenting on the book saying quote it shows people hanging it shows them killing kids why does the educational system promote this kind of stuff it is not wise or healthy being in the schools Educators and
2: stuff, we don't need to enable or somewhat promote this stuff. We teach this material, to be clear, so that we don't forget. What I hear in your question is like, what? Like, why are we talking about this? How is this not a thing that everybody believes and understands? But this year, it's as urgent as ever that we draw attention to censorship in the American public square, as data from the American Library Association that was released just last week demonstrates. The groundswell of organized censorship attempts continues to grow. It continues to intensify. We're seeing efforts to ban books about Black experience, queer experience, the experiences of people of color, books buying about these communities. We've seen organized pushes across the country to remove those books from school library collections and public library collections. And that's been going on for a couple of years now. And I don't know how we ended up in a world where that's where we're putting our energy, but that's where we got to put a lot of our energy right now, because a lot of people are really focused on limiting access to information for everybody, but especially for children. And it's terrifying and a surprising thing in 2023, but definitely a fight that we're all fighting.
0: I definitely want to get into what books are being banned. But first, so people have a real good idea of how broad this is the number of challenges to books in schools and public libraries almost doubled between 2021 and 2022. What's going on?
2: One of the things that I always like to say is that the challenging of materials isn't new. A lot of us our parents. I'm a parent myself. I have a 15-year-old kid, and I worry about him a lot. And I can absolutely see a case where he might come home with a book from the library that I might have questions about. And it's very normal for parents and members of the public to have questions about books that are in library collections. And so most libraries have policies and procedures that can respond to that. So I'd say, oh, I don't know if I feel comfortable with my kid reading Dune is always the example I use because he wants to read that book and it's way too long. <laughs> you know, so I'm not somebody who would ever restrict a book that he was going to read, but I'm always like, oh, maybe I don't want him to read that book. So the library would have a policy where I could register my concern and they would review it and make a decision based on professional priorities and principles and inform me about the outcome of that case. And, you know, the book would stay on the shelf or it would get moved or something, but it would be in alignment with a professionally developed policy. For book challenges. So what's different now is the organized nature of the challenges. So rather than having a single concerned parent, which I think all of us can really empathize with, what we have are people proposing bans on multiple books at a time, sometimes up to a hundred books at a time, and challenging them, not because they've read them and found an issue with them. In fact, they often haven't read the books at all but are using lists that are being circulated to challenge big sets of books in ways that are not authentic and are not really about expanding access or facilitating access to materials for their kids. So I think that's one of the things that's really different, which is what makes this banned Books Week as important as ever, is that the volume of challenges, the sheer number of individual titles that are being challenged, and then the fact that they're being challenged in, in groups like that makes it so that the normal professional procedures that we follow, they just don't work in a situation like this.
0: Bans occurred in 32 states, affecting nearly 4 million children and young people. And just this year alone, 1,900 library book titles are targeted for censorship so far in 2023. Let's really unpack what types of books are being challenged.
2: They are books that are by Black authors, by I... LGBTQ plus authors or about the experiences of those groups by people of color about the person of color experience and books that tell the stories of different kinds of American histories that are complex and layered. School districts and Republican-controlled state legislatures have rapidly intensified efforts to ban certain books about race, colonialism, and gender identity from public classrooms and libraries, while placing sharp limits on what can be taught in schools. According to PEN America, more than 70 bills to impose educational gag orders have been introduced or pre-filed just in the past month. You can see a lot of links between the books that are being challenged and other kinds of curricular challenges that we're seeing in K-12 education across the country. It's very clear, I think, that the targets are not individual titles of books, but in fact whole classes of people that are under threat.
0: Here's some numbers. 41% of banned books include LGBTQ plus themes. 40% feature protagonists or secondary characters of color, and 21% address issues of race or racism.
2: Yeah, people don't want to talk about race and racism. That does real harm to the culture as a whole, I think.
0: You would think major organizers are behind these challenges and these book bans. Who is behind the book bans? Is it just this organic upswell of public sentiment happening by
2: itself across the country? I think that's not what's happening. Well, they're organized censorship groups. And some of those I feel uncomfortable naming them. But
0: they are organized groups.
2: These are organized groups, and they're organized groups that are targeting books as part of an overall political program. And are they large groups? You know, I think they are. We don't want to overstate how big they are, but they clearly have. Significant power. They have the power to drive the conversation right now around libraries as spaces where children are unsafe. And it's just not true. We find ourselves now having to make an argument that libraries are safe for children. A report came out from the Human Rights Campaign recently a state of the state for trans and gender variant students in K 12 education. 60% reported feeling unsafe at some point in school. 90% reported feeling safe inside their school library. So when it comes to whether or not kids are safe in the library, I think, you know, it's very clear that the library is a haven for students. I think the power that they have is the power to shape the narrative that we're all combating right now, as well as legislation in places across the country where we're seeing from Texas to Florida to Tennessee to all over the states, Facing legislation that would restrict the right to read. So they clearly have power to back up their interest in removing books from circulation.
0: And these groups that we are just not going to name that are starting these challenges, they often say they just don't want kids exposed to sexuality. Are they challenging books where straight, cisgendered people are married or engage in sexual activity by and large?
2: You know, I don't spend a lot of time with their lists, but I think that's really not what we're hearing that it's really about LGBTQ plus sexuality is really the concern, although sex education books are targeted as well. And it's interesting, right? Because as anybody who's been a kid before can tell you, exposure to sexuality is something that will happen to you (laughs) as you grow up and it's terrifying. As a parent, I absolutely understand the anxiety, but I think it is unavoidable. So it's interesting to see the fight be about something that seems unavoidable. But yeah, I think sexuality is definitely something that they're targeting, but LGBTQ+, in particular.
0: And are they challenging books where the main characters are primarily white?
2: I have not seen that, no.
0: Is it safe to say that they are challenging books that depict queer characters or characters of color just living authentically?
2: That sounds like a fair characterization to me.
0: So what happens to marginalized kids and teens and adults when they can't access literature or information that is reflective of them or their lives.
2: Have you ever read a book that spoke to you, that taught you something about who you were? Yes. Yeah. I don't even think you have to be, you know, different, right? I think it's true for all of us. That's the power of literature that tells some truth about who we are that we couldn't access or understand in any other way. And when we remove books about particular kinds of experiences that removes the opportunity for kids to read about who they
1: are. The Department of Education is investigating a North Texas school district. The superintendent was secretly recorded ordering librarians to remove LGBTQ-themed books from libraries. The ACLU filed a complaint this past summer based largely on an investigation published by NBC News, ProPublica, and the Texas Tribune.
2: I think it's notable that a lot of these Books aren't even read by the people who challenge them. I saw a little news story the other week about a library in Mobile, Alabama that turned back a challenge because the people who had brought the challenge to the books, there was no evidence that they had read them. So I read one of them recently. I like try to read the banned books so that I know what I'm talking about. I read Flamer" by Mike Carrado. It's a graphic novel about a kid who is dealing with his sexuality and sexual identity at a summer camp. And what it's like to be gay at a boys only sleepaway camp. And it was such a tender and warm story about that experience. And you read it and you think how lonely it must be to feel like you are the only one and how much comfort there is in a book as a confirmation that you aren't alone and that the feelings you're experiencing have been experienced before and will be experienced again and are experienced by so many of us. They'd even write a whole book about it. You know, and I hear people say things like, Oh, you could just find that on the internet. You could just like Google it. I wouldn't recommend that. Also, there's something about the reading experience. I think that it is a private experience that it's you in the book, right? It's not social. And I think that's, you can't, reproduce that anywhere and so i think not having the books really forecloses for children what they can get from reading a book which anyone who's ever read a book and loved it and seen themselves reflected in it knows is like a a really beautiful and important experience plus imagine having to hear that the state is marshalling forces against your right to read a book about who you are what does that do to a kid you know to look around you and see the adults in your community so angry that they would attack the library. Everybody loves the library. You can't not love a library. If you think about what a library does and what it is and how it serves its community, you only love it. I really believe that. Library is a great place. But to see people are willing to shut it down because of who you are, what's that feel like?
0: I feel like the cruelty is the point, though. And my big concern... My other fear is what happens to straight white kids, teens and adults, when they don't see people who aren't like them depicted in literature.
2: Yeah, I think we live in a world that's full of all different kinds of people. There are so many different kinds of people. And one of the things I love about living in New York, which is where I'm raising my child, is that he gets to see all different kinds of people every day. You know, on his way to the subway, and when he goes grocery shopping, and when we go to the park, and we go to the movies, on his baseball team, and enriches his life. And I think that's important. And I think it does real damage to people when they're not exposed to that kind of difference. And I know that. You know, I know about that as a kid who grew up in an all-white school or majority-white school where, like, they literally hid people of color away from us. I remember the new immigrants who arrived in Boise, Idaho, when I was growing up there, they had to take their classes in the literal basement of my high school, like no interaction. And how narrow that made my world seem. And so I think, like, it does real damage to not have access to the stories of others. And just the recognition that not everyone is like you.
0: And people think that was so long ago. How long ago was that? What year are we talking?
2: I graduated 30 years ago.
0: So it was not... So long ago.
2: Not so long ago, and I'm sure that there are schools where that's still the case.
0: These groups that are pushing bans are also infiltrating local governments, like school and library boards. Some of them are even forcing their town libraries to leave the ALA. In a retaliatory move, GOP lawmakers in Missouri voted to defund all of the state's public libraries following a lawsuit by two library groups to overturn a Missouri law that banned 300 books in school libraries. And over in Texas, a small town threatened to close their three public libraries after a federal judge in Austin ordered them to return all of the books that they banned. What will be the impact of this if it spreads?
2: I've been a member of the American Library Association since I was in library school. And I'm a member of the American Library Association for lots of different reasons. But the big reason is that the ALA convenes library workers together to solve the problems of librarianship. So remember, we were talking earlier about how good librarians are at solving problems. When we get together, we're even better at it. And so the ALA convenes us together to solve problems that might sound pretty boring to you, but for example... With the internet comes new possibilities for how we might catalog and classify and describe information that's born digital on the web. If we have new systems for describing it in terms of metadata, it would be easier for information retrieval to be thorough and you're already bored, right? Well, for librarians, we find this incredibly interesting and it's all we talk about, and we get together in groups and at the ALA and try to figure it out. And So I think when we see libraries removing themselves from the ALA for partisan political reasons, when the ALA represents everybody in American libraries, and it's not just about a single person and their politics, it's about all of us. you know you really lose out on the professional work that an association like ours. Does. And so it makes a political point in a certain way, but it really diminishes the capacity of the library to take advantage of the work that we all do together at ALA.
0: And the ALA started the Unite Against Book Bans initiative. Tell us about that and give us some direction on how people should be talking about book bans.
2: So the United Against Book Bands campaign is a public facing campaign of people and partners who see the importance of the right to read and the importance of fighting back against censorship. And we've got a big list of partners and a growing list of partners, all of whom share our commitment to intellectual freedom, to the right to read, to the right to access information equitably, regardless of who you are and where you are in the world. So we invite everyone to sign on to the campaign at uniteagainstbookbans.org. And it's important so that you can stay up to date about what's happening in terms of organized censorship in this country. But mostly, I value it for the actions that we're able to organize through the campaign. You can report censorship so that we have a fuller understanding of what's happening in this country. But then we are also able to use it to quickly mobilize supporters around local issues when we see censorship issues happening. So it's really valuable in that way. The site also includes plenty of statistics and talking points that you can use if you want to speak at a board meeting or even run for a library board, as well as an action toolkit that has lots and lots of ways that you can organize your community against censorship and defend the freedom to read. We really urge everyone to sign up. It's a great way to get involved because I think so many of us, you look at what's happening, you think, oh, What are we going to do? How can we fight back? And it can lead you to despair. But I find the best antidote to despair is organizing for change and Unite Against Book Bans offers tools to help people do that.
0: I have a tough question for you. Are there books that kids should not have access to because of their content?
2: That's a highly personal question, right? That really depends on who you are. And I think the argument here is that while you have every right to parent in the way that you want to and to talk with your child about what they read, you simply don't have the right to do that for other people's children. And I also want to take a minute to say that the people who make decisions about what goes in the library, we're trained professionals. We have master's degrees. We engage in continuing education on best practices and collection development. It isn't a thing that anybody can do, right? Because if I'm going to build a collection, it's going to be full of, what would it be full of? My library would only have mysteries, no hardbacks because they're too hard to hold, right? It would have all kinds of random things that are just particularly about me. But librarians are trained to build collections that meet the needs of everyone in their community. We are laser-focused on the people that we serve in the school library. We're looking at the curriculum, what the teachers are teaching, we're looking at what the students we have, what they want, what languages they speak, their ages. In a public library, we're doing a lot of that same work, but we're also looking at what adult services are necessary, what kinds of books are necessary, for resources are necessary for the adults in our communities. I've been an academic librarian my whole life. Well, not my whole life. I had a life before libraries, but I don't remember it now. But we're meeting the needs of the curriculum. We're building collections that match the majors in our programs. And so the project of building a library collection, it's a professional job. And I would no more cut my own hair, or do my own plumbing, than I would try to build a library collection if that wasn't my expertise.
0: And even after everything that libraries bring to the community... When you list all of the education that you have in order to be a librarian, even after all of that, it's not really new that libraries and librarians are under attack. During the Bush years after 9-11, the Patriot Act could have forced libraries to effectively spy on their patrons without notifying them. And when they objected, a member of the FBI railed against radical, militant librarians. Why are librarians so often under attack?
2: Railing against the radical librarians is like an old story, and we're living this version of it now. That's when I was in library school and when I joined the American Library Association. And I joined because I saw an association that really stood for its principles.
1: One of the stories we tell in Standing Up to the Madness is about uh, some of the most tenacious and courageous freedom fighters in this country. These are people... You would not want to meet in a dark alley if you were trying to hijack somebody's civil liberties. And, uh, of course, I could only be talking about our nation's
2: librarians. (laughs) We didn't randomly choose a political position on the Patriot Act. We were strong and firm in our core values of intellectual freedom, the right to privacy, uh, and those things are just baked into what it means to be a librarian. We care about them a lot and they don't change over time. They don't change with political whims. That's exactly what's happening now. You see librarians engaged in the radical act of committing to their principles and core values. And that's what we're doing on the ground as library workers. It's what we're doing as an association. It's interesting. I don't think of us as like constantly under attack because mostly we're just like talking with a student about their sociology final and try to help them get peer-reviewed articles before the deadline. You know, that's mostly what we do. But to be targeted in this way, I think is really painful for a lot of us who have given our whole careers to meeting the needs of people in our communities and to sort of be cast in these ways by, by organized censorship groups has been really disappointing.
0: With that disappointment and that heartache, what gives you hope?
2: Going to library. Every time I go into a library, I see something new, something that I've never seen before, is something that knocks my socks off completely. I was at Newark Public Library last week, taking a tour of the collection over there. And I live in New York City, so I'm just across the water from Newark, but I'd never really been there. I had no idea that the library was as powerful as it is. It has an entire Black Newark history sort of focus. It has the largest collection of Puerto Rican literature outside of the island. It is just doing so much good work to document the history of Black Newark, the history of Puerto Rican Newark, and doing that and making all of those resources available to everybody in the community. I walked in, there was a sign on the door for an eviction assistance program that they're running later this week. Every library is like that. I walk in and I'm like, what? You circulate carpet cleaners? What? You have a cooking class here? I can't believe you have an indoor play space for kids and I don't have to buy anything? For my kid to play on it, it's just every single one is remarkable. And so what gives me hope is going into the library and seeing libraries so well used and so embraced by their communities, because that's the real story here. We've got a small minority making libraries into places where children are not safe. But the big story is, and the story that almost every American agrees with, is that we exist to meet the needs of our communities and to provide equitable access to information and resources for everyone. And I see it every day as la president, and it gives me hope and buoys me and keeps me going in the work.
0: Emily Drabinski, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast.
2: Thank you so much, Alyssa. It's been a total pleasure and a total joy.
1: I spent the last decade of my naval career fighting religious fascism abroad. Never thought I'd have to fight it right here in the United States of America. I grew up in rural South Carolina and books got me out of the trailer park. My parents trusted those educators and the librarians to let me read what I needed to read. I spent 21 years in the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program Ramo Rick Rickover said a questioning attitude was the key to success in the nuclear power program. I want my son exposed to different ideas and different viewpoints so that he can learn to think critically and not be force-fed somebody else's opinion. We've all been exposed to different opinions. It makes us better. Makes us stronger. Diversity has made me stronger. I didn't sacrifice 21 years of my life to stand idly by our religious fanatics and other fanatics try to impose fascism on my country. I urge you to think about what a book band needs and use transparency. I don't need anyone else telling my son what he can and cannot read. I'm very perfectly capable of determining that for myself. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening. Man,
0: fear is powerful. It might be our very strongest emotion. It's the thing that makes us band together, not in love, but in defiance, in anger, and often irrationally. Bad people in this country know that, and they use that to manipulate us. And make no mistake, the people behind these book bands, organizations like Moms for Liberty and other hate groups, are bad people. They use fear-based lies, like they're trying to groom our children to achieve their real agenda, spreading their agenda of hate against marginalized communities. This isn't about protecting our children. We know that giving kids and all of us access to literature, entertainment, and information that speaks to who we are actually protects us. It makes us safer. If these groups wanted to protect kids, they'd be in the fight to end gun violence. They'd be fighting for universal health care, for access to vaccines, for the expansion of social programs that cut poverty, that provide access to free lunches, that keep guns out of the hands of domestic abusers. They are not in those fights. And that tells us what we need to know about them. I am so glad that organizations like the American Library Association are there to safeguard our rights. But they can't do it alone. We need to be involved in protecting our school boards, our library trusts, our town and city governments from the influences of these extremists. That means running for office, that means voting, and that means standing up against their hate at every turn. If we don't, we risk losing everything great about our country.